Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, listen, if you're one of our partners, I got to tell you, um, or if you attend our church, I got to tell you happy birthday. You may not know it, but we celebrated our third birthday this past week, and uh, I'm just still blown away with what, all that God has done and all that he's doing in our church. So thankful for his faithfulness and thank, thankful for you as well. I miss you very much. It's hard to just look at a camera, but in my mind, I can imagine uh, being with the family that is South City Church. If you're not a part of our family, we would love for you to come down and check us out and be on mission with us here in central Arkansas. Uh, but happy birthday, South City. Can you believe all that God has done and all that he's doing in us? I ask you this question this morning as we get started. Uh, has anybody ever done this experiment with you? This, this, well, they ask you this question, hey, if you were stranded on, a, on an island and you had a few items that you could take with you, what would they be? That kind of a thing where you have to think, what are the bare essentials I would need to live? You know, what's funny is in this COVID-19 time that we've been in, in quarantine and uh, shelter in place and all the stuff that we're walking through and all the the issues that come along with that, it's kind of what it's felt like. It felt, it's felt like we've been um, on an island, like we had to live with the bare essentials almost, if you would. Uh, our work is different. We're working from the computer, from home in many places. We're, uh, our family life is different. Many of us are teachers now. I saw a meme that said uh, that uh, spankings and prayer were back in school again. <laughs> so I think that's kind of the way it is at my house too. Um, but there's no question church is different, right? I mean, I'm looking at a camera, you're looking at a screen, and we're not getting to be together. And that is a sad reality of our current uh, situation. But it, it begs the question, it's caused us to, to ask this question, what, what is essential for the church? What are the bare essentials in order for us to be a church, to be connected? Well, as, as pastors and elders at South City, we're, we're trying to still teach the Word of God. That's something that is uh, we won't compromise with. That is what we're called to do, so that's what I'm doing this morning. Uh, we're also trying to lead you in worship as well on Sunday mornings. We're trying to give you resources like Zoom for our city group leaders so they can stay connected with their groups, providing community and discipleship with those groups uh, still. We're trying to give care to anybody in our church that has a need for groceries or pharmaceutical needs or whatever. If we can run do that, then we want to do that. We're also trying to be a blessing still to our community uh, through our food pantry. In fact, this past food pantry, I think, was maybe the biggest one we've ever done. Uh, 120 families, cars parked from our kitchen area all the way around the building and back out to Baseline Road. It was incredible. And we're just trying to uh, continue to be a blessing in this time. But we've had, we've had to ask this question, what if church looked like this all the time? It's kind of a scary question because I don't want it to look like this all the time. I'm sure you don't either. But we have to ask the question, how will this experience change us? How will it change us as believers, as disciples of Jesus? How will it change us as a church? Um, how, how will we go forward after this experience? Will we do more Zoom meetings? Will we, I don't know, what, what will it look like, right? If nothing else, I think this experience has made us really consider what the end times might be like and how fast they can come upon us. Uh, I don't know about you, but this seemed like it came out of nowhere and it has disrupted and changed our culture and life as we know it. So the question is, what does it mean to be a Christ follower in this season and maybe the seasons to come, because we're not sure what the seasons to come are going to look like. Um, 
What about the end times? What, what will it mean to be a Christ follower in a disruption like this? You know, my hope is that perhaps we at least value community deeper. So if you're not involved in a city group, I'm praying that, man, you get in one. If you're not in one, we can, we can get you involved in one. They're meeting through Zoom meetings now. But when we come back together, I hope you really value community and connection to one another. I, I hope that you really value your family time, that you see time with your kids and your spouse as an opportunity for discipleship and that it is a sweet time now, but also as things change, that it continues to be. Uh, also think about this, as we go to work and we live in the community and we do things around the city, do we value opportunities to make Jesus known? And the hope is that we truly take those opportunities when we have them, uh, when the Lord gives us an opportunity to do that very soon, I'm hoping. You know, we just finished our neighbor series this past Sunday on Easter. And one of the neighbors I was considering talking about in that series was uh, the neighbor that you would call a church partner or a member or somebody that we're connected with as, as a person that's in the body of Christ together. Uh, as I began to think about the implications of that, I began to think about all the one another's in scripture. I realized that looks like a, its own series to me. And so I started thinking about this series called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church, for gathering of believers. And so I thought, let's do a series and we'll talk about what it means to be connected together as a family of families as the body of Christ. Um, but I'll be honest with you, I was praying for our series just a few nights ago, really thinking about what topics we were going to tackle and, and what was going to be spoken about. And, and it hit me, um, the Lord just sort of laid on my heart and laid in my spirit the idea of the seven churches in Revelation. And I, I was kind of taken aback, like I wouldn't, that wasn't something I was thinking about at all. <laughs> And yet it felt like God was impressing that on my heart right when I was thinking about what does this series need to look like? So I had to ask the Lord, Lord, what is this you're asking us to do? And I prayed about it, talked with one of our elders and, and we prayed together about it. And, and we felt like, yeah, maybe the Lord is leading us to consider these seven churches in Revelation. So this morning we're, we're entering a new series called Ecclesia, and it's going to be a study for the next seven weeks, this week included, over the seven churches in Revelation 2 and three. You know, when I think about these churches and I think about the fact that it was Jesus who spoke directly to these churches through the apostle John, it's kind of like getting the answers to the test. Now, I wasn't a very moral uh, junior high school student. I, I was kind of a rebel and, and did some bad stuff. And I promise you, if somebody would have approached me in the eighth grade with answers to one of my tests of one of my classes, I would have used that. There's no question I would have taken them up on that, uh, right or wrong. Wrong, obviously. Um, but it's kind of like the situation. It's kind of like as a church, as we ask these questions about what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be a Christ follower in this season? What does it mean to move forward as a church, even as this time comes to an end, hopefully soon? Is there a better answer than to get those answers and those expectations from Jesus himself? I don't think so. And the reality is in Revelation 2 and 3 specifically, Jesus speaks to these seven churches and he speaks over encouragements and criticisms. And as we look at those, we're going to hear from Jesus himself on what he expects his church to be. My, my hope in this is that we begin to, to ask these questions. Are we valuing the right things? 
Do we realize that a building is not the church now that we've been through this situation? Do we realize that community with one another and, and Bible study together, discipleship and accountability and confessional living, those things make up the church. Uh, and it might look different than it's ever looked before in our lives. Well, this is the time to begin to ask those questions. And uh, in this study, we're going to 99.9% of the scripture we're going to study is going to be coming directly from Jesus to his church. It's kind of like he's given us the answers to the test, if you will. Kind of saying, this is what I want. This is what I expect. And so I want us to clearly look at these things. We have an incredible privilege not only to hear from Jesus, but an opportunity to obey and an opportunity to repent. See, Jesus is going to encourage in these churches. He's going to critique, but he also lovingly gives an opportunity for repentance. And so some of us are going to be challenged individually. We might be challenged corporately in this series. My prayer is that we hear the word of God, that we pay attention to what he's saying to our souls and to our church, and that we honestly come before him and we repent if that's something that we need to do so that we can be all that God wants us to be as a church. Uh, you know, we're not going to just examine these actual seven churches in uh, Asia Minor uh, around the first century. No, we're, we're, um, we're going to look at what these lessons mean for us as a church. Uh, theologian John Stott said this. He said, so what does Christ think of his church? Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven letters, each addressed to a particular first century Christian community in the Roman province of Asia. Although their message is related to the specific situations of those churches, it expresses concerns which apply to all churches. By praise and censure, by warning and exhortation, Christ reveals what he wants his church to be like in all places and at all times. There's no doubt God wants to teach us as a church who he wants us to be through this study. And I pray that you'll stay engaged with us over the next seven weeks as we look at this study called Ecclesia. Would you pray with me this morning as we look at the first church of the seven, the church at Ephesus? Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for our church, even though we are separated uh, today, that we can be connected through this technology Lord, I pray that you would connect our hearts. I pray that you would strengthen our city groups. I pray that you would draw people who are on the fringes into our body. Lord, I pray that you would draw people we don't know even right now to our church and just strengthen us, Lord, so that we can be exactly who you want us to be doing the work and mission, God, that you've called us to as a church. Father God, I pray that you would help us in this lesson, in this study, even today, to think about what it means to love you and to love people. God, I pray that you would help me to decrease in this time, that you would increase in this time. And we pray that the spirit of the living God would lead us to all truth as we study your word today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, the first thing I want to do as we get into this study is I want to talk about the context of what we're talking about. First of all, when anybody says you're going to preach through Revelation, my eyes get big and I get a little shaky because that sounds uh, really nerve-wracking to me. Um, I don't consider myself a super theologian, even though I'm, I'm becoming more of one. Uh, it's one of those books that seems a little scary to me, you know? Um, and so when the Lord laid this on my heart, I realized 
we're going to have to take this uh, one bite at a time and take a, a look at what, what's going on. So before we get into our lesson and into our message this morning, I really want you to take a look with me at the context of what's happening. The uh, first thing uh, I want to bring to your attention is a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's riding in on a donkey. He's sort of this um, covert king. Of course, we knew him to be, and we know him to be the king of kings, but in that moment, some people worshiped him as king and laid down their cloaks before him, and they waved palm branches, and yet a few days later, they shouted, crucify him. So they were a fickle people that didn't really believe he was king, and, and Jesus was so, sort of covert in, in his kingship, if you will. But at the first chapter of Revelation, there is no mistaking the fact that Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the all-powerful risen King of the world. So there's no, it's very overt at that point. Jesus is making it clear who he is uh, to the Apostle John. Jesus appears to the Apostle John. John is about 90 years old at this point. John is living on, a, on called a, an island called Patmos. And this is an island where he has been sent there as a, a criminal. Uh, his crime is believing and testifying about Jesus. He, he's pastored people. He's telling people about Jesus. And uh, Rome has sent him to this island uh, to be punished, if you will. It had been a very difficult life as a 90-year-old man um, of isolation and hard labor. Um, the setting is that John is worshiping. He says, on the Lord's day, and of course, we know that to be Sunday. After the resurrection of Jesus, the church began to worship. Instead of Saturday on the Sabbath, they began to worship on Sunday, the Lord's day, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection every single week. It's why we continue to worship on Sundays today. So he says he's worshiping on the Lord's day, and he's caught up in the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God has got him in sort of some sort of... Uh, space of experience where he is downloading to him all this information that he wants him to have about the book of Revelation. He tells John, take these things down, the things you see and the things you hear, put them in a book, and I want you to take them to the seven churches around Asia here. And so, and then Jesus gets real specific, and he literally says, these are the, the churches that I want you to uh, take them to. Jesus literally lays them out in the order. If, if John were to walk from one church or take a, a ride of, of, on a horse or whatever, he would literally go from this church to that church, and Jesus literally lays those out in the correct order. I want to show you a map here of these seven churches. Uh, it starts with the church at Ephesus. Of course, the island of Patmos is just west of Ephesus, right into the... Uh, uh, into the sea there, just a little just a little ways. It's an island right off the coast. He would go to Ephesus first, and then to Smyrna, and then Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then wrap up uh, south down there at Laodicea. Um, so this is exactly the way the Lord's laid these uh, churches out, and this would be the way that John would get this message passed around. Now, if you talk, if you think about Ephesus. You can't help but think about the book in the Bible that was written to the people and to the church at Ephesus. It's called Ephesians. It's a wonderful book that really talks about the depth of the church and the purpose of the church. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, it's a prison epistle. Paul writes in prison. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. But Paul was the one who established believers and the church in Ephesus. Uh, he did a really good job. He was very thorough. In fact, look with me what it says in Acts 19.10. It 
says, uh, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All the Jews and Greeks in, in this province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul has done an exceptional job of preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus around this area. And he has established this church and Paul himself has pastored the church at Ephesus for at least two years. Uh, we also see in Acts 20, um, that Paul loves the elders uh, of the church of Ephesus and he meets them in Miletus and he, he, uh, it's just a beautiful time where they, it says they weep together and they embrace one another. So he had deep relationships within this church. You know, I think about pastors who pastor different churches. Um, the pastor who was the pastor of Temple Baptist Church, the church that we uh, replanted as South City, had a, had a pastor. His name was uh, Richard Walters. He was my pastor growing up. He's the man that led me to the Lord. He's the man that baptized me in that baptistry right there. Sadly, Brother Walters went to be with the Lord about a week ago. And um, it's a sad thing, but it's, it's a complete and unbelievable, unexpected honor to be sort of in the lineage of men like Brother Walters. So I think about him and, and this church. I can't help but think about the fact that the church at Ephesus had some amazing pastors, Paul being the first pastor, Timothy being a pastor, and the apostle John was also a pastor at the church of Ephesus. So can you imagine the depth of discipleship that had taken place between those three men? Those three men? Can you imagine uh, the things that they had taught, the things that they had uh, given to these people, especially in word and in doctrine? Uh, it would have been very, very strong. So um, back to John's back to John's vision. So what's happening here is is Jesus is downloading um, to John this vision and this information about uh, Revelation. John says he sees a figure that looks like Jesus when he turns around to see who's speaking with him. He sees Jesus basically. He says, and Jesus is walking among seven golden lampstands. Jesus is. Uh, Standing there, he's got seven stars in his hands. You can read this in, in Revelation chapter one. Seven stars in his right hand. He's dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Uh, he has, his hair is white. His eyes are like a flame. His feet are like burnished bronze. And his voice sounds like the rushing uh, roar of many waters. He has a sword, a sharp sword coming out of his mouth and his face was shining like the sun. Now listen, you can't help but read Revelation and get caught up in a lot of prophetic imagery. I'm going to explain some of it that I think pertains to where we're headed in the conversation of these churches. Some of it I'm not going to get caught up in a whole lot of that. But this morning I do want to look at a few of the, thing, the things that, that John sees in this moment because they're beautiful. And I think they're encouraging to us as a church. Number one, uh, John sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus walking around these lampstands. Now, at the end of chapter one, we're going to read it in a minute. Jesus tells John that those lampstands are these churches. They're the seven churches. It says that he's walking around those lampstands. You know, when Jesus came to be with his disciples, he told them, I am the light of the world. And a little bit later, he says, now you are the light of the world. See, the church, as believers in Jesus, we are the light of the world. And so as a church, we're a lampstand to light up the darkness so that's, that's what that is, basically. And then Jesus is walking among the lampstands, which is so beautiful because the Greek word here about walking is current. It is active. Jesus is currently, actively walking among churches. 
I don't know about you, but that is very comforting to me. Jesus even said in the Great Commission, I will be with you to the end of the age. He's still with us. He's still current. He's still walking with us. He's still uh, holding us tight. In fact, it says in his right hand, he has seven stars. And those seven stars, Jesus says, are the angels of the churches. Now, a lot of theologians debate about what he means by this. Now, some people think that's literally an angel that has been um, commissioned to a church. But most theologians think it is the pastors or shepherds of those churches, which is obviously very comforting to me to think that Jesus himself, not only is he present with us, is he walking around churches and, 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 and going through what we're going through and, and helping us, but he's holding us in his right hand. He's holding me in, in his right hand. That is a very comforting and loving thought. Jesus is dressed in a robe uh, with a golden sash around his chest. That's representative of a priest. So Jesus is going before the Father for us as our priest, as our high priest. His hair is white, which speaks of wisdom. His eyes are like fire, which means he's seeing clearly the, the issues in the churches. Um, his feet are like bronze, which represent his authority and his power. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a great waterfall like Niagara Falls or something, but you stand there, you can barely hear yourself talk because it's so loud. The rushing waters, the sound of rushing waters is so loud. You can feel it in, inside your bones. That's what John says Jesus' voice sounds like when he speaks. And his face is so bright, it shines like the sun. An incredible moment right here, an incredible scene. If you try to wrap your brain around what, the, what it looked like or felt like, it would have been overwhelming. In fact, John falls down almost like a dead man. Look with me, if you would, in the word. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are, uh, are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's even Jesus explaining this uh, prophetic vision that he's giving to John. You know, last weekend was Easter and we talked about the beautiful power and amazing a reality of Jesus' re resurrection that we still have, even in us as believers, the power of the resurrection in us. Here, Jesus in Revelation 1 says, he holds the keys to death and Hades or death and hell. He is the only one who does. And it speaks of the fact that Jesus can open and close with those keys. He is all powerful. And he looks down at John and he says, John, write this stuff down. Write everything you see and hear down. And so John begins to take notes on the things that Jesus downloads to him about these churches. Now listen, Jesus makes no, he wastes no time getting to what he wants to speak to these churches. And so this morning I want us to get into the first church we're going to look at. It's the church at Ephesus. Like I said, this is the church that Paul had established. Uh, Timothy had pastored and John had pastored. And now Jesus is going to speak to the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2. Uh, verse one, he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake 
and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works uh, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus wastes no time uh, giving his letter, if you will, to the church at Ephesus. And John is is taking notes and, 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 and taking all this information down. We're going to see what Jesus is doing here. The first thing he does is he encourages and he criticizes. Encouragement and criticism, right? In verses uh, one through four. The encouragement to the church at Ephesus is this. He says, I know your works. And that's comforting to me because it means Jesus is not only holding me, he's not only present walking around the churches, but he knows what we're doing. He knows our good works. He knows our toil. In other words, the hard work we're putting into this ministry. He, he knows our efforts to stay doctrinally pure. He knows our patient endurance. It says, Uh, to the church here. He says, you can't bear with those who are evil. He says, you test those who are false prophets and you endure patiently bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. In other words, you have been doctrinally sound. You have protected the church from wolves, from these false prophets, and you have been patient as you have borne uh, or bear the load of being a believer. In other words, in this time period in, in Ephesus, there would have been persecution. And the Christians, in order to be believers, would have had to uh, bear the weight, if you will. That's the kind of the picture that Jesus is placing here. Bear the weight of persecution. You, have, you, have, uh, you bear this, you bear up for my name's sake, Jesus says, and you've not grown weary in doing so. So Jesus is encouraging. He's mentioned all these wonderful things. You guys are doing this great. He gives a thumbs up gives a good grade. And, and what's interesting is these are all the things that, that Paul and Timothy and Pastor John, as they pastored the church at Ephesus, were teaching believers. Look at 1 John 4, 1 through 6, that was written for the church at Ephesus by John. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So here's a perfect example of how John has discipled the church at Ephesus to know truth and what is false, to know uh, true prophets who come knowing God and speaking the truth of who God is in in the purity of who Jesus is, and those who are false prophets and able to not accept them but cast them out. So John has given them this uh, discipleship, and Jesus here in Revelation 1 and 2 are saying, good job, you're doing a good job here. What's interesting, though, the tone sort of shifts, and Jesus changes his tone. He says, 
but this I have against you. Now, I don't know about you, but to even think about Jesus saying, I have something against you, scares me to death. It, it, it makes my heart shudder. This is what he tells the church at Ephesus in verse four, chapter two. He says, but this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So here's what Jesus has done. He, first of all, he, he gives very detailed encouragements to the church at Ephesus. You're doing good, a good job in these areas. But then he rebukes the church and he says, but I have a problem with something here. I have a problem with the fact that you don't love me like you used to. You know, Jesus, it says in scripture that Jesus is the savior who is full of grace and truth. And I see that in, even in this rebuke. He's encouraged uh, in a spirit of grace and he's also got a spirit of truth in that he rebukes uh, the sin of the church at Ephesus. He says, you've abandoned your first love. You've walked away. You left it. You abandoned it. He uses the word in the Greek, agape. Of course, we know the word agape is the love of God. A lot of people see this uh, scripture in, in chapter two and they say, oh, we've left our, our love of God. We don't love him anymore. But it's not just loving God. It's also loving people. What's interesting is we just finished a series about loving God with all we are and letting that inform our, the rest of our lives as we love people. They kind of go hand in hand. So agape means the love of God, yes, but to a relationship between you and him, but it also means that you give God's love to other people. So it's a kind of a twofold sort of a situation. Uh, but the church of Ephesus has not always been this way. They have been a loving church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This was written to these people, to this church. He's saying, I've heard about how you have the faith uh, that you have and the love that you have for one another. It's beautiful. So the church at Ephesus has been a loving place, loving God and having faith in God, and yet loving other people. That is, that is a beautiful thing, Paul says. I'm proud of you. He says, I'm remembering you, and I don't cease to give thanks because that's who you need to be. But yet Jesus is here now some you know, decades later saying, you've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. What, what happened? You, you abandoned love. What Jesus is saying is now you're, the works you're doing and the things that you do, there, though they're good things, you do them out of obligation. You don't do them because you love me. You're all caught up in your head and you've forgotten your heart. You, you still do some things, but you do it because you feel like you have to, not because you want to. You're not motivated by a love relationship with Jesus or for people in his name and in his Love. Jesus gives three specific things that we can do to come back and, and change that scenario. He says, um, look what he says here in verse five. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. That's the first thing, remember. Do you remember when you really loved Jesus? Do you remember when you, you just, you thought about him nonstop? You, you got in the Bible, you read, you wanted to learn, you wanted to understand. You worshiped with all your heart because you loved with all your heart. Jesus says, that's the first thing you got to do. Remember what it was like to be in love with me again and to use my love for people and to love people that way. And then the second thing is very important. He says, repent. The second thing Jesus says is repent. 
That just means stop doing what you're doing and turn around and go the other direction. Repent, be sorrowful over what's going on in your life that you have abandoned love. And then the third thing he says is basically return. He says, go back to the works that you were doing when you loved me. Go back. Remember what it was like to love me and love people with my love. Repent because you're not there anymore. And then return to the way that you lived and the things that you did before. That's his remedy for a loveless uh, existence as a, as a believer in Christ. So then Jesus, after giving uh, encouragement and critique, he's going to give correction in verse 5. He says, uh, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the second time Jesus has said to repent. It's a pretty big deal when Jesus says twice for the church at Ephesus to repent. That means see your sin the way I see it as something that is wrong. Be heartbroken, mourn over who you've become that you don't have a love relationship with me anymore. Also notice this, this is a church-wide rebuke. You know, this is not like two or three people who've lost that love and feeling, if you will. No, this is a a church-wide rebuke. So what I'm saying that to you is don't let your lack of love relationship with Jesus affect how God treats our whole church how he disciplines our whole church. Let's be a people collectively loving him with the motivation of doing the things we do because we're in love with Jesus. What's beautiful in this moment is Jesus still gives an opportunity to repent. He, he, he encourages, then he rebukes, and he says, but you can come back and what you have to do is remember and repent and return to the works that you were doing before. Jesus loves us so much, he longs for us to come back. You know, we talked last weekend on Easter about loving like Jesus. In fact, I said uh, basically what the apostle, same apostle, Apostle John said in John 13, 35. He said, people will know that we are his disciples. The world will know we're his disciples by how we love. So here's the thing. If we're not a loving people, then we're not the church. If we're not a loving people, we won't be recognized as Jesus's people. It's a very serious thing. We need to remember our first love, repent, and return to the works that we lived when we really were in a love relationship. You know, there are churches, they may have flawless doctrine and theological constructs that are so heady, uh, you can hardly wrap your brain around them. But can I just tell you something? If they cease to love, if they don't have love, Jesus said, I'll come and remove your lampstand. I'll come and take the church away. What's interesting is it's not okay, according to Jesus, to be theologically correct and not love. No, it's got, we gotta be both. We gotta be theologically correct. He encourages good theology. He encourages protecting the sheep. He encourages hard work and good works. He encourages bearing up and bearing his name. He encourages these things, but he, he says, if you don't get love back and the motivation for why you do these things, then the church will be over and you won't even represent the church. Then we see in verse six, Jesus says he is encouraged and critiqued and then he's corrected and now he's gonna have a consolation. And he kind of he kind of encourages again, sort of a thing. I, don't, I read a business book years and years ago. I can't remember if it was the QBQ or some E-Myth or something. I can't remember which book it was. But there was a book that basically said when you're over someone, when you're reviewing a, an employee or having a conversation with an employee, 
a good method is sort of a sandwich method. In other words, encourage them on the front end and then bring a criticism in the middle and then encourage them again on the back end. It's kind of a good way to kind of get an uh, uh, encouragement in there, but also a criticism and not leave them discouraged, hopefully. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He encourages, he, he criticizes and rebukes, and now he sort of encourages again. Look what he says in verse six. He says, yet this you have. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we got to talk about who in the world are the Nicolaitans. Well, the truth is they're only mentioned right here in verse six. And then later, I think in verse 14, when uh, he's speaking to the church of Pergamum. Evidently, this was a group of people who were doing bad things. They were preaching that it was okay to have adultery. It was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Of course, we know uh, even the Jerusalem Council was saying those two things are not okay. That that's not, this should not be part of a Christian uh, lifestyle. And yet the Nicolaitans were saying it was. And so Jesus has a very strong language for this group of people. He says he hates them. And he says the church at Ephesus hates them as well. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see that the church at Pergamum uh, didn't rebuke them as strongly as the church at Ephesus. Um, what's interesting about these people, the Nicolaitans, they're, they're led by a guy by the name of Nicholas. We don't see this in scripture, but early church fathers, Arrhenius and Tertullian, both mentioned that this Nicholas was a part of the seven deacons mentioned in Acts 6. You remember when we were studying the book of Acts um, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked in the food distribution and they kind of threw a fit and they were like, we need, so we need better representation. And, and Peter and the, and the disciples said, well, why don't you recommend seven leaders who are godly men, who, seven leaders that you respect and we'll put them over that distribution. And, and in that seven group of seven men came Stephen, who was an amazing preacher and was stoned and started the persecution and, and, um, scattering of the gospel around Judea and Samaria. Then there was also Philip who became an amazing evangelist and preached to the Ethiopian, remember? So there's amazing men. Well, another man in that seven was a guy by the name of Nicholas. And these church fathers say that it was that Nicholas that left the true faith of Jesus and began to kind of do his own thing and began to preach that adultery was acceptable, that eating meat uh, sacrificed to idols, these things that, that Greeks would have done Anyway, Gentiles would have done anyway apart from knowing Christ. So Jesus has very strong language and he says, at least you have rebuked them and that, that, that is a good thing. So Jesus encourages, critiques, and then encourages again about this group of people. And then lastly, as I close, I want you to see Jesus sort of brings this all to a, a conclusion in verse seven. In verse seven, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Well, this is kind of a, a figurative statement. Of course, many people, most people have ears. Uh, but what he's saying is, if you're willing to receive this, if you hear this and you will receive this and do something about it, don't ignore it. Hear this and, and let it motivate you to change. Can I just stop for a moment in the message and say, will you do the same thing? Let you, if you have an ear to hear, if you have the reception in your own spirit and heart to hear what I'm saying through the word of God, what Jesus is saying to the church about a love relationship with him, if you hear this in the spirit, act upon it. Don't ignore this. What is your love relationship like with Jesus? Do you have one? Or have you been serving out of obligation and not out of a love 
relationship, not out of a a desire to please and, and serve the Lord. The next thing he says is, in verse seven, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the, of, of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus is saying, when you conquer this, for those who conquer this, what do they have to conquer? They have to conquer wrong motivation in their soul. They have to conquer, instead of uh, being cold and, and just brainy and, and cerebral in their theology, no, they have to conquer that and really actually get their hands dirty in the lives of people. They have to love with the love of Jesus again. They have to love him with all of their hearts and still be theologically sound. Jesus said, if you'll overcome this, if you'll conquer this, you'll be in heaven with me. You'll be in paradise. And he speaks about Eden again. You see, uh, Eden was this perfect place for relationship with God, a love relationship with God. And Jesus says, if you'll overcome, if you'll conquer this, I'm going to reproduce Eden And you can eat of the very tree of life. You can be with me in heaven again. So I guess this is the question I have for us this morning. What is it going to take to overcome where you are, to get you back to a place of love? So many of us, we go to church. Maybe you do a Bible study. Maybe you get down on yourself if you don't have a number number of streaks on the Bible app. Or you forget a whole week of Bible study. Or if you haven't been to church in two months whatever the case may be. Listen, the thing is, is don't serve the Lord out of cold obligation. Be committed to Jesus because you love him with all of your heart. You realize the price that he's paid for you and and you could never repay him. And so you say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to worship you. I want to love you. And I want to love people with your love. Jesus says, that's what Ephesus was missing. And he gives them this uh, course of action to get back to that love relationship. Remember what it was like to love me and to love people with my love. Repent and return to the works uh, of what you were doing before. Can I just ask you this question this morning? Has there ever been a time in your life where you loved Jesus more than you do right now? Just take a second. Search your soul, search your heart. Has there ever been a time in your life where you loved Jesus more than you do right now? Has there ever been a time where you loved people with his love more than you are right now? Friends, I think if if you answer that, yes, there has been a time and it's not now, then I think you need to repent. You need to stop what you're doing and say, God, I'm sorry. It is sinful. I have walked away from a love relationship and connection to you. And I've been serving out of obligation or religion or tradition or whatever the case may be, but I want to serve you because I love you. Because you first loved me. Help me to love you again. Friend, the sad reality is there's no more city called Ephesus. It's modern day Turkey now. And you can go to some ruins, but there's no city there. And there's no church at Ephesus anymore. That's very sad. In fact, the people who live in that area, there's only, they would only claim 2% of the people that live in that area call themselves Christ followers or Christians. How sad, how sad it was such a strong community of believers and now it doesn't exist. My prayer is that at South City in Southwest Little Rock, in Central Arkansas, 
that God would continue to grow us deep in theology, deep in doctrine, deep in pleasing him with our works and our toil and bearing up under his name for his glory, but not at the expense that we don't love him. Friends, my heart and my prayer is that we love Jesus and that the world around us says that church is in love with Jesus. Yes, they do these other things, but they do it out of a motivation of love. Dr. Daniel Aiken is a uh, professor, a seminarian, an author, and theologian. He says, tell me what you think about and I'll tell you what you love. Tell me what you talk about and I'll tell you what you love. Tell me what excites you and I will tell you what you love. He goes on to say, my prayer is that for you and for me that the answer is we love Jesus. Can I just tell you, I hope what you think about is Jesus. I hope the greatest love in your life is Jesus. And if it's not, can I encourage you just to take a moment and repent? Just to come to him. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. You've never had a relationship with him and you just want to say, Lord, I don't know you, but I want to know you. I believe you died for me. Would you please forgive me my sins? I repent of my sins. Change me. Help me to believe. Help me to walk in you the rest of my life. This moment could be the moment that you return, that God brings you to this love relationship, either back again or for the first time. This is his rebuke. It's his prayer. It's his letter to the church at Ephesus. And it's also his message to us. What does your love relationship look like with Jesus today? I promise you, he loves you more than you can ever fathom. He gave his own life so that you might know him and that you might love him. May we be all that the church of Ephesus was and even more so as we love him with all that we are. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you so much for the privilege to be with your people, even if it's through Facebook or a video. Lord, thank you so much for your word God, thank you so much for this story and for this actual event that took place where, Lord Jesus, you, uh, you showed John what you wanted him to write down to give to these churches and also to give to us. May we glean from that moment what it is you want us to do and who it is you want us to be. Lord, we want to be the church that pleases you, that loves you, that honors you with all that we are. God, we want to love you. And Lord, I'm just reminded that you say in many places, if you love me, obey my commands. Let us be a people of obedience. Let us be a people of action. Let us be a people who remembers our first love, the love that matters more than any love in our lives. We'll be better husbands if we love Jesus most. We'll be better wives if we love Jesus most. We'll be better parents and better children and better brothers and sisters and better church members if we love Jesus the most. God, draw our hearts to you. Help us to know you and love you. It's in your precious name I pray. Amen. Hey, listen, as I uh, finish up today, I just want to encourage you. We're here for you. Um, we're still in the office some. We're still connected as a staff. We're still thinking and praying for you. If we can serve you or something, uh, comment in the, in the comments and let us know if you have a need 
and we'll reach out to you. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that you would continue to worship with us uh, as we do these video posts and as we continue to be the church that God wants us to be at South City. God bless you guys. Take care.